Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for this podcast is Dr. Alyssa Eppel, associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco, where she also serves as co-director of the UCSF Obesity Center. A highly regarded researcher in terms of her work on stress and eating, we've recorded another podcast on that topic, but also on issues that could be central to the discussion of whether food can trigger an addictive process. So welcome, Alyssa. Thanks, Kelly. You've done some absolutely fascinating work that could be very central to the discussion of whether food can trigger an addictive process, and you've written some very nice papers on the issue of food and reward. Um, Can you explain, now reward has meaning about brain chemistry and things. Can you explain what you mean by reward and then tell us about some of the things that you found? Sure. So when we look at eating behavior, you know, the question arises, why is it that that people overeat against their will, against their strongest desires to control their weight? They still may um, overdo the calories, eat a whole bag of cookies, and then just feel terrible about it. What is going on? What what kind of uh, you know strong impulsive drive might might cause someone to do that against their will? And so, if you look at the neurobiology of eating, it turns out that the reward center in our brain is a major driver of what we eat and how much we eat. So, the reward center is an area, the ventral tegmental area, that is uh, regulated by dopamine and opioids. And one area of it, the nucleus accumbens, is what we call the pleasure center of the brain. It lights up when we're doing very rewarding activities. So it's a tremendous motivator of human behavior. So when rats get, for example, sugar or something highly palatable, this reward center goes crazy. So food, highly palatable food, is this natural reward that lights up that center. But rats habituate. So when they keep getting the same uh, pleasurable sugar, they they habituate and they tend to uh, have a normal brain response rather than a complete reward-driven response. But what is happening in people when we when we eat highly palatable food? Are we really habituating or are we possibly becoming sensitized and becoming dependent on that level of reward? Well, I think that there are, there are a lot of individual differences and a large uh, proportion of our population is wired to become dependent on highly palatable food so that we actually go through what what one might call hedonic withdrawal. When you eat less of that food, you feel terrible. So if you look at, for example, um, Fast Food Nation, what you find is that Morgan Spurlock went through withdrawal when he stopped eating McDonald's for about five hours. He felt nauseous, he felt shaky. That's opioid withdrawal. Oh, interesting. So you're you're referring to the Super Size Me movie that that Morgan did. That was very interesting. Um, So you're, you're presenting a case that food may act on the brain similar to other things that provide pleasure, other substances, let's say, that provide pleasure. So would that include things like nicotine, alcohol, morphine, those sort of drugs? Right. So those same neural pathways that are responsive to food are the same pathways that are responsive to drugs of abuse. So there's a tremendous overlap in our our brain response to from, highly palatable food and drugs of addiction, as, as Bart Hobel's research has shown um, with rodents. So in, in our lower species, in animals that didn't have much cortex, they're extremely well calibrated to 
keep homeostasis, to only eat as many calories as they need. But now that, but what happens is that in our um, in our human brains, we have um, we are not very good at t- detecting exactly how many calories we need, and the reward system can just completely override those delicate signals of of satiety. And so we might the pleasure might cause us to eat a lot more than we really need easily. And there are other factors that kind of moderate that um, that reward response. So, for example. We believe that severe dieting or trying very, very hard not to eat certain forbidden foods actually sensitizes that reward system so that that it backfires and that people tend to overeat or binge on those types of food. And in fact, there is um, a rat study by Mary Bogiano that shows exactly this. When you give rats some Oreos and then you take them away, the next time they, they get those Oreos, they actually don't overeat. But if you add stress to the equation, they completely binge. And then if you block the reward center, if you block the opioids, you block the binge. So we know that stress adds to this uh, reward-based binging and that opioids are the mediator. So the same neural pathways that regulate addiction. So let's talk about the strength of this, this phenomenon that you're talking about. So clearly things like cocaine, alcohol, nicotine, these drugs can be very highly addictive. And so they create this impact on the reward center of the brain. How does the the food impact compare to that in its strength? I don't think that, that we have the data in people to compare the strength of that reward response. But I think that uh, we know that uh, certain people really do suffer from what they feel is food addiction. And um, I've, you know, I've met people at a, a one, I think one of the first food addiction conferences, I met many people who described their relationship with food that was exactly um, like an addict's relationship with, with alcohol or heroin. And it was, it was extremely, um, it impaired their life in ways just like addiction did. So I know that in the extreme, there is food addiction. So I've heard the same stories from people, and they can be very moving about how much life, lives can be affected by this. Now, and those people are probably a statistical minority, the ones who by any definition might be considered an addict and their lives are completely disabled by that, and that's important. What about maybe lower levels of the addiction, like when, when a, a kid's getting off school and he you know he or she is walking home and goes past the convenience store and wants a sugared beverage when they want sugar for breakfast is it possible that some level of addiction is occurring there maybe not a fragrant fragrant a flagrant level of it but enough to have a public health impact and an impact on the health of the people that might be responding this way Absolutely. At our um, childhood obesity clinic at UCSF, um, Roberts Lustig, the doctor who runs it, his first advice to kids and families is to stop having soda. And some families come back um, three months later, and despite their best intentions and their concern for their health, the, they can't stop drinking soda. And so it's there is a dependence, what we call food dependence, that is on a spectrum with addiction. We've been trying to, with David Kessler, we've looked at um, a large sample of lean to overweight people to try to measure this, this, um, this construct of kind of food dependence, people who feel really preoccupied with eating, they feel like they can't get 
enough. They don't feel satiation. They feel out of control. And this was a very common condition. We found this in about 50% of obese people. And what was interesting, about 20% of lean people also felt that chronic drive. And now in a survey of uh, over 600 women, we also find that that um, that people who report more chronic stress report a similar syndrome of this overdrive to eat. They think about food. They don't feel control over food. So it's a very... Um, you know, troubling condition that is extremely common these days. And I think that the toxic food environment is the number one driver of this, and stress just exacerbates it. So you mentioned sugar beverages in particular. And sugar comes up more often than any other food constituent in the discussions of food and addiction. Is that just because sugar's been studied more, or do you think there's something special about it that is more likely to trigger something addictive? I think that sugar has um, special properties in the brain. So, for example, Elliot Blass's work shows that even a newborn baby can be calmed by sucking on sugar. So, okay, so that, that would lead down a whole long road of possible public policy interventions to deal with addiction, which I think could, could be very interesting. Um, so what do you think the consequences of this are? Some of the implications might be for the way we deal with the nation's deteriorating diet, people consuming more calories than they need, not eating enough fruits and vegetables and things. Do you, do you think we're at a point, or how far do you think we are from a point where we say, yes, food can be addictive? I think that um, we, we are you know, steeped in the ideology of personal control, that people just have to say no even when the, the donut's right in front of them. And the bottom line is that that doesn't work, that our brains are wired such that almost everyone will choose the donut, especially if stressed, especially if trying not to, um, to eat it, that that kind of restraint is, is peanuts compared to the strong impulsive drive we have and the number of opportunities throughout the day that we have to um, seek and consume this type of food. So we, it's... While we're doing um, individual-level interventions at UCSF, such as helping people with mindful eating, we know that that, the, that type of individual solution is just a weak Band-Aid compared to the enormity of the epidemic of, of exposure to toxic food and overeating. So we've got to have food policy that can help people. We know from economics that changing, changing the tax structure, changing environmental defaults, is the is the on, only factor that actually shifts the behavior of the public. The just a final question. The drug abuse researchers use a very powerful metaphor to to explain the impact drugs have on the brain, and they talk about drugs hijacking the brain. And this would mean that the drugs take over personal control, overwhelm good judgment, personal responsibility, and factors like that. Um, do you think that this, that strong of language is applicable to the food and what food might do to the brain? It could be that the answer to that is no, and it could be that we just don't know yet, but I'm curious about your impression. I think that for some people the answer is yes. And I think for children when they don't have very well-developed um, inhibitory responses or prefrontal cortex connection, we have to control the environment for them. And what is happening is that they are so over, overexposed and overconsume sugar that they're set up for the rest of their lives for a life of obesity or trying to fight obesity, both 
both being very taxing on their health and happiness. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Kelly. Our guest today was Dr. Alyssa Eppel, Associate Professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco, and co-director of the UCSF Obesity Center. Please visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org for a variety of resources, including other excellent podcasts, a free email newsletter that goes out monthly on issues of food policy and obesity, news alerts, and the like. Thank you.